For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Dudici. You're listening to Daybreak. For the past three weeks, Princeton students on campus have been spitting in tubes twice a week, putting those tubes into drop boxes not unlike a library deposit, and waiting around a day to find out whether or not they need to quarantine. This test for SARS-CoV-2, the RNA virus that causes COVID-19, has become a bit of a magic black box. What goes on between drop-off and results? And what's up with the research we students can opt in for? It's Sunday, February 7th. Today, I'm sitting down with Dan Notterman, a lecturer and researcher with the rank of professor in the Molecular Biology Department. Notterman is one of the main lecturers for MOL 214, Introduction to Cellular and Molecular Biology. The class serves as a prerequisite for most biology-adjacent courses at the university, and it's also a pretty key starting point for the pre-medicine track. Now, I'm an astrophysics major, and I'm certainly not pre-med, but I took the class last fall, and while it didn't all stick, I remember one of the last lectures pretty clearly. In it, we talked about the COVID-19 testing clinic on campus that had been operational since last August. Before the pandemic closed campuses in March, the thought of a testing clinic like this on campus would never have crossed anyone's mind. In five months, Princeton had constructed a state-of-the-art testing facility, capable of running 10,000 samples over a five-day work week. Notterman, though deeply involved, would be the first to tell you that it was a team effort. This was really a, a very large team effort. I and the other people in my lab group and some of my faculty colleagues did provide some expertise in the molecular biology and even in the, the logistics of how to set the lab up, which equipment to buy. But this effort for testing students involved literally dozens of the university's leadership and hundreds of the university's faculty and staff, mainly staff, in order to make this work. The process began right after spring break last year, when everything on campus shut down. A team including the Dean of Research, Environmental Health and Safety, and University Health Services worked to determine the best testing method. Eventually, they settled on the saliva test because of its comfortability and accuracy. As construction began, only one issue remained. The last step uh, that we had to do was take care of the regulatory issues, because this is a clinical laboratory. Um, it can't be managed the way we manage a research lab in LTL or GEO. Rather, there have to be specific people um, with specific credentials involved, including physicians uh, who have credentials that I don't have. And so we needed to recruit an expert in laboratory medicine, a pathologist who was properly certified in this area to help us, and we were able to do that. And in order to get approval from the Department of Health and the FDA to run this test, we needed to fulfill the, the strictures of what's called an emergency use authorization, an EUA. And that meant we had to link with an existing lab. So um, we were able to form a partnership with Infinity Biologics in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey, and were able to bridge to the technology, the saliva technology that they had invented. Sounds like a really impressive collaborative effort. So by now, all students participating in the testing program are probably pretty familiar with the little tubes that we have to fill up twice a week and deposit in drop boxes around campus. So could you describe for me the journey of those samples from that point on? What actually goes on in the lab? So the samples are dropped, and of course, they have to get to the lab. So there's a, a fairly uh, complex courier system 
that brings the samples to the lab several times a day. And when the samples come to the lab, the, they come in big garbage bags, believe it or not. And, and as you know, they're, um, they're inside of, of little biohazard bags, which are there to protect technicians in the lab in case a sample leaks. Now, um, as I think uh, people understand, by the time the sample gets to the lab, uh, the virus is inert. It's been inactivated. The blue liquid that you see that splashes down into the saliva um, completely degrades the ability of the virus to reproduce. For those listeners not currently living on campus or in the area, I should probably pause to explain a bit more about these samples. Each sample kit includes a little vial, maybe the size of a small test tube from your high school chemistry class. There's a thin, wavy black line around the middle, adorned with three self-explanatory words, spit to here. Once you've followed those instructions, you screw on a cap, which contains a bright blue liquid. As Notterman mentioned, the liquid starts to splash down into the sample, killing any strands of the virus that might be present, while ensuring they remain detectable for the lab. Once they're in the lab, the samples are, for all intents, anonymous. Those of us working in the lab don't actually have anybody's name. And we do that for privacy. The only folks who get both the sample and the result and the person's name are the clinicians at University Health Service who, who have a need to know. The only association is a barcode on the sample that students scan before submitting their tests. It's scanned on arrival at the lab so they can get the results. After that, a robot dips into each sample and takes out just a third of a milliliter to use for testing. Think five drops of water. This is treated with various enzymes and reagents to prep it for a process that will pull out RNA. In the end, from the whole vial of saliva comes a sample of RNA about the size of a drop of water. The sample goes through one last stage, which you might have heard about in the news. In PCR, which stands for polymerase chain reaction, we use reagents which do two things. They identify a region of a genome, and then they amplify that region. And they amplify it through a series of operations which we call a cycle. And with each cycle, the amount of the specific region of the genome that's present approximately doubles. So in 30 cycles, the amount of that DNA that doubles is approximately two to the 30th. So you can take a really small sample of the virus and get a ton of it. With this method, you can detect very small samples, right? Yeah, so we can measure um, about 100 viruses per uh, milliliter which is not very many. Um, and um, we, you know, we say we can do 600 uh, just to be conservative, but we can actually do a little, little bit less than that. This is super cool. If the virus is at all present in the RNA sample, PCR will double it with every cycle. By the end, it's much more easily detected if it's there. And if it's not, the result is a resounding not detected. It's a neat process, but you might be trying to do some mental math right now, and I'll tell you, it doesn't quite compute. The vials we fill every week seem much too large for a process that only requires a sample the size of a few drops of water. But there's much to be done with the excess. Notterman is listed as the primary investigator on a research program to which students can opt in. That's about as many details as I know. You have a research program underway that um, students can opt into. 
And on that site where we can opt in, it says the purpose of your work is to learn more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, and also learn more about the health status and risks of us, the participants, through our saliva. So what exactly are you doing with our spit? Okay, fair enough. So we save the spit. Even if we weren't doing research, we would save the positive samples and some of the negative samples for what we would call lab operational use, right? In other words, to um, make sure the equipment is running, repeat samples a few weeks out, that, that sort of thing. With the research program, you know, Mark, it really is open-ended still. I developed this program with some of my colleagues to serve as a resource for both faculty and student investigators at the university in future years. With people's permission, what you're giving us permission to do when you sign that permission, is to link the biochemical, the molecular results of the sample. And it, it might not be only whether you're positive or negative, but how strongly positive you are, how much virus you have, and what, what the particular strain of virus is. So by saving the virus and having the ability in a de-identified way without identifying a person, but to say, find out if that person was clinically sick, for example, find out if the rate of spread of a particular strain on campus seems higher for one strain than another, we're able to both protect ourselves, identify these variants in our community, but also to contribute to general knowledge. The idea is not for me to do my research, but to allow people in EEB to do research, to allow people over to LSI, and today I was even talking with some of my colleagues on the Faculty of Molecular Biology of making this information available to seniors for their thesis projects if they're interested, because we know that it's a difficult year for seniors in the experimental sciences. And you know, this is a way that, that students doing JPs or, or thesis might be able to get some interesting information. So building up a database of samples to be used right. for Hold any up. research that you might need. It's called a registry. The technical name would be a registry. Okay. Where we're able to combine demographic and clinical information, but again, in a way which doesn't identify the participant hmm. uh, with the molecular information from the virus. Good to know. So to close this out, can you give us a best case scenario of what type of information might come out of this research that might be done on this registry? Sure. Uh, let me think. There's so many exciting possibilities. So, so let's say we find two strains circulating on campus. By circulating, he means strains that have been transferred between on-campus students, not just isolated cases of students bringing in a strain from somewhere else. Now, we haven't seen that yet, actually, but it could happen. Let's say we find out that strain A, the average person infects 1.3 other people. Strain B, the average person infects 0.8 people, right? So that would tell us something about how contagious the sample is. That would sort of be like what they've discovered in the UK, that there are strain-specific differences. Here's another very interesting topic. We're now beginning to introduce a vaccine. So, you know, the vaccine is targeted against the S protein which puts a tremendous amount of selective or evolutionary pressure on the virus to mutate S. As we get more and more of our students and faculty vaccinated, we have a natural experiment where we can watch the shaping of the virus genome 
over time on campus. That's very exciting to people who study viral evolution, and it's important information which could help guide updates to the vaccine. That's all for Daybreak Today. Today's episode was produced under the 145th Managing Board of the Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. Have a wonderful day.